Appreciate very much uh, Brother Tim's effort this morning and the thrust of his message being that we have a God of all comfort and whatever we find ourselves in on a day-by-day -day basis, we know that we can call upon God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, we're told to come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's what those disciples did. They had a, a great need that came upon them suddenly. But when they called upon the Lord, the Lord responded. The Lord spoke peace, and peace immediately took place. He commanded peace, and peace took place, and the storm went away. And the disciples, and the Lord made it to the other side like he told them they're going to. In the very beginning, he said, let us go to the other side. Let's always remember that. Whatever happens between here and the other side, God's able to take care of. Okay. This morning, I'd like to look at a, a statement. Uh, actually, it's a question that establishes a great truth found in the book of Acts, chapter 26 and verse 8. In Acts 26, 8, we find the Apostle Paul stands before an earthly king by the name of Agrippa. The Apostle Paul had been taken into custody, so to speak, a little earlier, several days prior to this, in Jerusalem. And finally, in his trials and tribulations, he comes before this king. And the apostle asks him the question. He says, why think it, why think it it's incredible that God should raise the dead? He asked Agrippa this question. The apostle Paul was actually in chains as a prisoner for this very, very truth. That God raises the dead. He said, I'm called in question this day because of that. The hope of our fathers was that God raiseth the dead. So Agrippa, why would it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Of all the miracles that Christ performed, and we know that he gave sight to the blind, he gave hearing to the deaf, we know he cleansed the lepers, we know that he enabled the lame to walk, and we know that he raised the dead. As far as God is concerned, one miracle is just as easy as the other. No miracle is any more difficult than the other. A miracle is a supernatural intervention when God enables something to take place that otherwise it never would take place. God can raise the dead. We, we know that. We have it on record about that. So this was the question that Paul actually found himself in chains for, was the fact that there were those who believed this and there were those that did not. The Pharisees believed it, but the Sadducees did not. And there were many in the heathen world who knew nothing about this, and they certainly didn't believe it. But Paul was happy to have this occasion to stand before Agrippa. He says, I know that thou believest the prophets. If Agrippa believed the prophets, he'd have to believe in this great truth that God raiseth the dead. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ during his lifetime here we find on record where he raised three different individuals from the dead. I personally believe he probably raised more than that. In the book of John, chapter 20, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that he's appearing unto his disciples. And uh, we find that he uh, showed himself numerous times to his disciples. And after appearing the second time to his disciples behind those closed doors where they had met for fear of the Jews... We find the Bible tells us, and many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples. And we notice this very carefully. Who did Jesus do these signs in the presence of? He did in the presence of the disciples. Jesus did not go back to heaven as soon as he was resurrected. He spent 40 days here on this earth. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, did not walk back through the streets of Jerusalem. He did not go back there to where Herod was and Pilate was and the chief priests and scribes and say, you know, you thought you'd gotten rid of me, you crucified me, but here I am. I'm resurrected from the grave. He didn't do that. He had told them, John chapter 14, verse 19, that a little while the world shall not see me, but ye shall see me. He said, because I live, ye shall live also. We find later in chapter 16, he tells the disciples, a little while ye shall not see me, and then a little while ye shall see me. And they were perplexed by this expression when the Lord said in a little while. Now a little while may mean one thing to you, it may mean another thing to somebody else. I might leave the house and I call back to the house and Karen said, how long are you going to be? And I said, well, I'll just be a little while. And to me, a little while would probably be 15 to 30 minutes. But if we reverse that, then she's gone. And she calls, and I call her, and I say, how long are you going to be? She says, well, I'll be home a little while. I don't need to look for her for about two hours. <laughs> you see, a little while to her is one thing, a little while to me is another. What the Lord had in consideration with a little while, it meant he was just prior going to the cross where he would lay down his life, and then he would lay in a barred tomb for three days, and while he was in the barred tomb, they wouldn't see him. After he's resurrected, they would see him. The world would not see him. Do you notice the difference in the two verses I gave you? John 14, 19, he says, In a little while the world shall not see me. And they never saw him after that. Only his disciples saw him. But it says there in John 20, and verse 35, And many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written. Many more that are not written. And then he closes out the Gospel of John in chapter 21, the last verse. And he says, and many other works did Jesus do that are not written in this book. If they'd all been written, he says, I suppose that even the world itself would not, uh, could not contain the books that should be written therein. So the Lord did a lot of works. The Lord showed a lot of things to his disciples that are not written here. But these things were written. And he tells us why they were written. He says, and many other signs did Jesus impress his disciples that are not written. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'm willing to take the testimony of a Mary Magdalene. I'm willing to take the testimony of above 500 brethren at one time. The Apostle Paul tells us he was seen above 500 brethren at one time, recorded there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm willing to take the, the word of 12 apostles that saw him. I'm willing to take the word of the Apostle Paul, who said, last of all, he was seen of me as one born out of due season. So when did Paul see him? Well, he saw him when he was caught to the third heaven and had that miraculous experience. Paul's the only one, I believe, in history who's ever left this world. He said, in body, well, I was in body, out of body, he said, I can't even tell. But I believe the Apostle Paul was given a special experience where he witnessed the resurrected Christ, and no man has ever had that experience before or since. So we find the things that's written then are written that we might believe that he is the Son of God. We take the testimony of these different ones that saw him between his resurrection and his ascension, which was a 40-day period of time. Now, Paul asked Agrippa this question again. Why thought, thinking a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? That's a very important question. It's a very important uh, a subject that we need to have the truth to. I was asked this question just a couple weeks ago by a lady when I was on a preaching trip that I've known for years and she's heard me preach many, many times. And she's heard Primitive Baptist pre preachers preach many, many times. And she asked me some questions 
about what happens at death that I was very surprised to hear. I'd have thought she'd have had the answers to the questions she actually asked me. This is not somebody just started attending. This is somebody been going her entire life. And so I tried to explain them to her, but it got me thinking. You know, uh, here, here's a subject I'm afraid a lot of the Lord's people are very, very shallow in. A lot of the Lord's people don't have the answers to, I think, an extremely important question here this morning. Does God have the power to raise the dead? Do we expect one day to arise from our graves where we've been laid after our earthly journey is over? Do we expect to hear the voice of the Son of God who shall speak and our body shall hear that voice and come forth? I trust that we do this morning. So why would I believe such a thing as this? Well, I'm going to take the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to begin with. And Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 28, he tells his disciples to marvel not at something he just got through telling them in verse 25. In verse 25, he said, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now, we need to understand who the dead are, are in that verse, verse 25. Those who are dead in verse 25 are those who are dead in trespassing sins. They're alive naturally, but they're dead in sin. And he says, The hour is coming future now is present when the dead shall hear of what? The voice of the Son of God. Not the voice of the preacher. That's not the purpose of the voice of the preacher. The voice of the preachers do what Brother Tim said this morning, that is to say, comfort you, comfort you, my people, thus saith the Lord, that the warfare is over. The purpose of the voice of the preacher is to publish salvation, the good news and glad tidings that encourages and strengthens God's people as they travel here in this world. But to be raised from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ re requires hearing the voice of the Son of God. His is a life-giving voice. My voice is not a life-giving voice. My voice is for the living. But the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ is able to actually give life to those who are dead in trespass and sin. So three verses later, the Lord said, marvel not at this. He says, the hour is coming. Now he says, this is future only. The hour is coming, which they are in the graves. Now we know exactly what he's talking about here. They in the graves shall hear his voice. Those who were dead in trespassing and sins be raised to a state of life in Christ had to hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who are in the graves, when the Lord comes again, the end of time is going to have to hear the voice of the Son of God. And hear the voice they shall. It said, they which are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. And they've done good to the resurrection of life. They've done evil to the resurrection of damnation. We believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. If you go to the 24th chapter of the book of Acts, you'll find where the Apostle Paul states that very fact. Again, he was called in question about all this. And he said, we believe that God shall raise the just and the unjust. There should be a resurrection of the just and also the unjust. That's what Jesus said here in John chapter 5 and verse 28. They have done good to the resurrection of life. They have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. We believe in heaven. We believe in hell. All right. There's a resurrection of the just, a resurrection of the unjust. Now, he says they'd have done good. That does not mean they did good to become a child of grace, but that's a characterization of their life when they lived here in this world. Somebody would look at that person and say, well, that's, that's a good man. Why would they say he's a good man or he is a good woman? Because they lived a good life. And you can see the evidence of that. On the other hand, they've done evil is a characterization of their life. Their entire life was one of evil from beginning to end. It was constant and consistent, a life of evil. Therefore, there will be a resurrection of the unjust. They're the unjust. The Lord Jesus Christ 
tells us in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, when the Son of God shall come in his glory, says he shall come and he shall come with his mighty angels with him. So get this picture. When the Son of Glory shall come in his glory with all of his mighty angels with him, he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. And then it says, the King of Glory before him shall all nations be presented. And he will divide them as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He'll put his sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. And he'll say to his sheep on the right hand, Come, you blessed my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then I'm going to skip a few verses because I want to see what he does on the left. But he's going to say to those goats on the left hand, Now, this is not literal sheep and literal goats, you understand. Sheep represent the Lord's people, goats represent those who are not the Lord's people. So it says to the sheep on the right hand, his people, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, prepare for you from the foundation of the world. But those goats on the left, he says, depart from me into everlasting fire, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Depart from me into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. There's an everlasting fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels. And the goats on the left hand are going to be cast in there right along with them. He comes to the end of the chapter and he says, These shall, that's cast into the lake of fire, shall go into everlasting destruction, but the others unto life eternal. That's a picture of what's going to happen at the end of time. That's a great interest to me. Okay? All right. Then I come over to the book of 2 Thessalonians 1 and 7, and the Apostle Paul said, You who are troubled, rest with us. There are things that trouble me in this life. It troubles me when I see it looks like that the wicked get away literally with murder. When I see the wicked, wicked the evil of this world seem like go unpunished. Those kind of things trouble me. But Paul here says, To you that are troubled, rest with us. For the Lord himself shall come with his mighty angels with him in flaming fire, okay, to take vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason they don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is because they never knew God to begin with. That's why they did not obey it, okay? And he says he's going to come in flaming fire to take vengeance on them that know not God and obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting punishment when the Lord shall come to be glorified in his saints. The Lord's coming to be glorified in his saints. And when he does, he's going to take vengeance, all right, on those that know not God. There's an everlasting fire. All right, this is what we can expect at the end of time. There's going to be a resurrection of the just, a resurrection of the unjust. And if there is no resurrection, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what are the consequences of it? He starts his chapter out by telling them that he's declared to them the gospel of which they have received, wherein they stand, whereby they shall be saved if they keep in memory what has been preached unto them. The saving here is not eternal. The saving here is a deliverance from ignorance to knowledge and from darkness to light and from untruth to truth. The truth shall make you free, the Lord Jesus Christ said. If you keep in memory what I preached to you, how that according to the scriptures Christ died for our sins, and according to the scriptures he was buried and rose again, he said, if you keep that in memory, it'll save you. It'll deliver. The word saved always means delivered. Remember that. That'll help you understand a lot of texts. It means delivered. You always deliver from something to something. He then says, 
If there be preached among you that Christ rose from the dead, how say some among you there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, and I'm going to list them off, off to you. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is in vain. What am I doing up here? If Christ has not risen, then my preaching is in vain. There's nothing to preach about. When I preach, it's to bring good news and glad tidings. It's to publish the good news of the, that the warfare is over. You've received double for your sins. Your nicknames are having pardoned. It's to comfort you, comfort you, my people. And thus saith the Lord message that Brother Tim mentioned this morning. Okay, if there be no resurrection dead, Christ is not risen. Our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. You're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep, that means who have died in Christ, are perished. And then it says, if we have hope in this life only in Christ Jesus, we're among all men most miserable. Here are six things that will be the case if Christ has not risen. If, Christ has, if there is no resurrection, Christ has not risen. Our preach is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We're still in our sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we had hope in this life only, notice this. If we had hope in this life only in Christ Jesus, we're among all men most miserable. We're not just miserable. We're among all men most miserable. But the truth of the matter is this. Christ has arose from the dead. And we're not in our sins. And our faith is not in vain. And our preaching is not in vain. Right? And those who have died in Christ Jesus have not perished. And I am not miserable this morning. <laughs> I'm happy as a lark. Okay? I rejoice in the great truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ has arisen from the dead. And that guaranteed my resurrection. That guaranteed your resurrection, you see. Now, understanding this and believing this should have an impact on your thinking and also your behavior in your life. It did Abraham. You go to Genesis chapter 22 and God tells Abraham to take thy son, thine only son, up to a mountain and offer him on the mountain that I will show thee. The apostle Paul references this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. He said, by faith, Abraham offered up his son Isaac when he was tried. That's what the word tempt means in Genesis 22. When he was tried, he offered up his son Isaac. It said, and he that had received the promises, which is Abraham, offered up his only begotten son. The word begotten means one of a kind. It means unique. Abraham had more sons than just Isaac. He had Ishmael. He had several children after Sarah died with Keturah. But Isaac was a special, miraculous child. He was born unto Abraham and Sarah when they were too old to have children. She was 90, he was 100. His body was dead and her womb was dead. So that's why he's called the begotten son. They said, for as it is written, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now, the Lord had told Abraham he was going to have a child, he was going to have a son, going to call his name Isaac. And through him and his seed, all the nations there should be blessed. The seed under consideration is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? So how is that promise going to be carried out if he offers his son on the altar and slays his son on top of Mount Moriah? How is that going to be carried out? 
Well, he says in the next verse there in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham accounting that God was able to raise him from the dead. Accounting God was able to raise him from the dead. So if he slew his son, which we know how the story went, it never got to that. Abraham had his knife drawn. His son Isaac is bound on the altar. He's got his knife drawn, about to carry out the will of God, the command of God to slay his son because he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. That's the only way that through him and his seed all the nations there should be blessed or could be blessed is that God would raise his son from the dead. But of course, the angel spoke to, to Abraham, said, Abraham, stay thy hand. He hears a noise and behind him there's a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And here we have what you might call uh, preaching by type. All right, we have Isaac being submissive to the father's will. Isaac was not a little boy. Isaac was a young lad. Isaac, no doubt, was strong enough at this time in his life. His father's over 100. I believe Isaac could take him down. <laughs> I believe that. Now, I'm a lot older than my children, but they better not try to take me down. <laughs> Just believe that I could keep that from happening and you will be fine. All right. Isaac is totally and completely submissive to the will of his father. The father is going to offer him upon the altar. The Lord Jesus Christ was offered, my friends, on Calvary on behalf of the family of God. Tim quoted Hebrews 10, 14. Wherefore, for one offering, sin, well, for one offering, God has perfected forever them that are sanctified. But here we find where God provides a lamb and sends the thicket by its horns. And we find where Abraham now is able to loose his son Isaac. See, that's where we were at. We were on the altar. But we now have been loosed from the altar because God provided a lamb in our stead. And so he takes the lamb and he puts it on the altar and Isaac goes free. That's why Jesus could say this in John 8, 56, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad in it. That's the day Abraham saw when God delivered his son there off that altar, and Abraham did not have to slay his son, but he was willing to, he was going to, by faith, accounting that God was able to raise the dead. Truth impacts our thinking, which impacts our, our life and our behavior and our actions in this world. Now, I want to go to the three instances this morning that we have on record, and I believe there's more than this took place, but this is what we have on record where the Lord Jesus Christ raised somebody from the dead. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one to rise from the dead in a glorified body. Everybody you read about in the Bible that was raised from the dead was not raised glorified. That'll happen at the end of time in the morning of the resurrection. They had their life restored to them. And they had to die a second time. There is a tradition among the Jews, and I emphasize tradition, among the Jewish people, that after God raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus asked him the question, will I have to die again? The Lord said yes, and Lazarus never smiled again. Tradition. <laughs> That's not Bible. Lazarus will die again. The daughter of Jairus will die, died again, and a son of a widow woman died again. But I want to take a look at these three this morning. You'll find... Lazarus in John chapter 11, you'll find the daughter of Jairus in Luke chapter 8, and you'll find the widow woman's son in Luke chapter 7. If, if these were written, we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, 
and he did many other signs among his disciples is not written, then we need to pay real good attention to what is written. So here's three cases where the Lord Jesus Christ will raise the dead. The question Paul had to Agrippa is this, why seem it unto you incredible that God should raise the dead? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ raised three people on record from death. But let's take a notes, look at them here this morning. One was an adult man, a Lazarus. One was a young man, the only son of a widow woman. And the girl was 12 years old. So basically we have a child, we have a young man, and an adult man. We come up here to John chapter 11, and the Lord Jesus Christ gets a report that Lazarus, his friend, is sick. Lazarus is not dead at this point, but he's sick. And he says, for he loved Lazarus. He loved Lazarus. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. He loved this family. This family loved him. But the Lord does not do anything immediately about it. The Lord actually seemingly delays his going to where Lazarus is at. But eventually he gets there. And when he gets there, you're going to find where Martha says, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Martha felt like he had to be in the presence of her brother to keep him alive. That was, that is, was, a, that was an error in her thinking. Jesus Christ could have kept him from dying right where he was at when he got the report if it had been his will to have done so. But that was not his will to do that. Not on this occasion here. So Jesus arrives at the grave of Lazarus. He's been buried now about four days. And Jesus tells Martha, he said, Martha, thy brother shall rise again. She said, I know he shall rise again in the morning of the resurrection. And she said, I am the way, well, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, he that believeth in me, it says, he shall never die. And he says, he that believeth in me is dead, he shall live again. Believest thou this? And again, that's when she said, I believe he'll live again in the morning of the resurrection. Martha believed in the resurrection. She believed the Lord was coming again. That's some truth she had in her mind and her heart. So the Lord tells them to roll the stone away. And Martha objects. She says, Lord, he's already been there four days. She already knew the body had already started decaying. If the stone was rolled away, there's going to be a smell that would not be pleasant. The Lord told them to roll the stone away anyway. And when the stone was rolled away, sure, you could see death because there's Lazarus dead in the grave. You could also smell death. There could be no question Lazarus was dead. And the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to Lazarus and he called him personally and individually. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus immediately came forth out of that tomb, out of that grave. There was no hesitation. There was no delay. In these three cases here, you're going to notice when Christ raises these three from the dead, he speaks directly to them. He didn't always do that when he did other miracles. When it comes to the dead, he did. Another thing is, they never brought somebody dead to Jesus. Jesus always went to the dead. They brought the sick to Jesus, but Jesus always went to the dead. So he comes here to the grave of Lazarus. And he calls him personally, he calls him individually. There's no hesitation, there's no delay. There's no disobedience, there's no failure. What happens? Lazarus comes right out of the grave, doesn't he? Right out of the grave. Now, he comes out of the grave like he went in the grave with one vital exception. He came out of the grave like he went in the grave standpoint, he's bound from head to toe with grave clothes. But he went into the grave dead, he comes out of the grave alive. Jesus just spoke him right out of the grave. Lazarus come forth. 
What would have happened if Jesus in that cemetery had just said this, come forth? You know what would have happened? Every grave in that cemetery would have opened up. That would have been what we call a general call. But this was not a general call. This was a personal call, an individual call. And the Lord said, Lazarus, come forth. Oh, so only Lazarus come forth out of the grave. That's what happens in regeneration. When God regenerates one of his children, he speaks to them personally and individually, and they're the only ones who hear that call. When the Lord called me in that way, I, I didn't hear an audible voice. I just know a period of time in my life when I know a change came into my life, in my heart, in my soul. Jesus speaks personally and individually to Lazarus to come forth. He comes forth. Then there's disciples right there. And he says to disciples, loose him and let him go. That's my job. <laughs> That's the preacher's job. Try to loose God's people. In other words, take the, the grave clothes off. Take the headband off where their eyes can see. Take the grave clothes off where they can walk. Take the grave clothes off where they can serve and worship the great God of heaven, where they can serve Jesus who raised him from the dead. That's the job of the preacher. Comfort you, comfort you, my people. Pointing to Jesus. He's the one that raised you from the dead, not us. It was impossible for those disciples to do that, but it was not impossible for those disciples to take the grave clothes off, where he could see, where he could hear, where he could begin to move, where he could begin to, to serve and worship Christ, you see. All right, just hold all that just for a second or two. Let's move over here to Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, there's a man who's a ruler of the synagogue. His name is Jairus. The ruler of the synagogue would have presided over the proceedings of the synagogue. That was a place where they met and the scripture was read and somebody gave a Bible lesson out of it. There were others there, but this man was in charge. He'd been a man of, of authority. And Jairus has a little girl who's 12 years of age, and the Bible says she was a dying. Remember that. She was a dying. That means she was really close to dying, right? She was a dying. She was really close to experiencing death. As the Lord is going to go to where Jairus is at, he's intercepted by a woman who has uh, had a blood disorder of 12 years. We got the number 12 used twice here. The girl is 12 years old, and the woman's got an issue of blood. She's had it for 12 years. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to heal her before he ever gets to Jairus. But by the time he does that, the little girl dies. Jesus was not late. He wasn't late, just like he wasn't late at the grave of Lazarus. Jesus is always on time. I want to tell you here this morning that Jesus Christ was born on time, the very time the prophet said he'd be born. And the Lord Jesus Christ was on time every day that he lived. He was right where he was supposed to be, doing the things he uh, had uh, on his uh, calendar for that day. There wasn't a day, brother, that Jesus didn't know where he was going to go, who he was going to see, what he was going to do. That's totally unlike me. Sunday night, I try to look at the week that's coming up, and uh, think about what I need to do Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or something like that. And then I find out just about all the time when Thursday comes, I'm still doing what I was going to do Tuesday. But that's not the way it was when Jesus. Every time the day ended in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, he'd been exactly where he needed to be, done exactly what he needed to do. 
and he got it all done totally and completely, he didn't run out of time. I don't know how we'd live if we didn't have this expression to fall back on. You know, I just ran out of time. I just ran out of time. I needed more time. Jesus never used that expression. You know why? He never ran out of time. Uh, he never needed more time. He always did exactly what he purposed to do. And he's right on time in this situation right here. He lived on time. He died on time. He was buried on time. He arose on time. He's going to come back on time. Do you know that? He's coming back right at on time. He will not be late in his second coming. So, while all this is happening, the daughter of Jairus, she dies. And people in the household sent word to Jairus, said, bother not the master. Trouble not the master because she's dead. You know what that tells me? That tells me that they thought while he had much power could help those that were sick, if somebody died, it was too late. He didn't have the power to raise the dead, in other words. It's too late, no need to come now. There's nothing he can do. That's, that'd be sad to think that, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be sad to have the thought in your mind there's nothing God can do? That things are just out of hand, things are out of control, nothing God can do. That's the way it seems like in the world sometimes. I can tell you what, this world is out of control. It's way out of control. But God is still sitting upon his throne. God is still in the heavens. He's still ruling and reigning in righteousness. Just like King Nebuchadnezzar said there in the fourth chapter and 34th verse of, of the book of Daniel, all the heavens and earth are reputed as nothing. But God works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or send him, what doest thou? What an outstanding statement this is. God works his will among the army of heaven. None can stay his hand because he's omnipotent, and none can send him, what doest thou? Because he's sovereign. The Lord told that man, he says, fear not. <laughs> he gives him some comforting words. Fear not, everything's going to be okay. And the Lord gets there to the house of Jairus' daughter, who's 12 years old, and indeed he finds her dead, but here's how he expresses it. He told them to weep not, for the damsel is not dead, but she sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. You know why the Lord said that? Oh, the Lord knew she wasn't breathing. The Lord knew she'd already passed this scene of life. The Lord knew she was dead, but as far as he was concerned, she had just fallen asleep. Because they laughed him to scorn, he put them out of the house. They're going to miss something they wouldn't have missed if they hadn't laughed him uh, you know, to scorn. And he's going to take the mother and father and Peter, James, and John in there with him. They'll witness this. And he says to the maid, he says, arise. And she arose. And he told them to give her something to eat. Tell them to give her something to eat. Now here's a little girl, 12 years old. And the Lord commands for her to arise, and she arose. She was dead, and the Lord restored her life. Why well, think you a thing incredible, Agrippa, that God should raise the dead? Then we come to the seventh chapter of the book of Luke. And you're going to find where this woman is bringing her, taking her son out to go to the cemetery, coming out of the city, going to the cemetery. And the Lord Jesus Christ and a crowd with him is coming toward the city, and the city's name is Nain, N-A-I-N. The Jesus had been up in a town called Capernaum, about 26 miles away from Nain, and the Bible says in the next day, that means the Lord Jesus Christ made a 26-mile trip on foot. 
I may have told you all this, but anyway, Karen's got in this walking mode. She gets to every morning when it's before the sun comes up, and she's out there walking the neighborhood, walking the golf course, and when she gets back, she's walked between five and six miles. And if that's not enough, most of the time in the afternoon, she repeats it. That means she's walking 10 to 12 miles a day. I just can't get excited about that. <laughs> i just tell you right now, I just can't get excited about that. But I suppose if she started out in the morning and walked all day long, she'd get 26 miles in, right? The Lord gets 26 miles in. He goes from Capernaum down there and it says his disciples was with him, which means more than just the 12. There's a crowd of people. I want you to get this scene right here. Because here's a crowd of people leaving Capernaum where the Lord healed the servant of uh, the centurion who was about to die. But the Lord kept him from dying. He didn't keep Lazarus from dying. He didn't keep the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus from dying. Because God is sovereign. He do what he wants to. While he didn't keep Lazarus and the girl from dying, he restored the life back to them. So they're rejoicing. But as they approach the gate of the city, here comes, a, here comes a, an assembly of people coming out of the city. And they're not rejoicing. They're sad. They're grieving. We sing a song, mixtures of joy and sorrow, I and daily to pass through. Isn't that, a, isn't that a, a, a realistic song? Mixtures of joy and sorrow, I and daily do pass through. It's a mixture of joy and sorrow. Life's a ups and downs and ins and outs, isn't it? It's always a mixture. So we have a mixture here. We got two crowds meeting, one rejoicing, one grieving. They come together just outside the gates of the city. Now, in the case of Jairus' daughter, he comes there right after she di has died. The Jewish people, when, when somebody died, they'd wash the body, they would anoint the body, and then they would take it and bury it all in the same day if possible. So Jairus' daughter's just died. Here's a young man who's been dead long enough. They've washed the body, they're anointed the body, and they're heading out to the cemetery. In Lazarus' case, he died. They washed the body, they anointed the body, and put it into a tomb. It had been there about four days. Now, is there any such thing as dead, deader, and deadest? Not a one of them was any deader than the other, right? Now, they didn't all, had not all been dead the same length of time. But they're all dead. One is no more dead than the other is. No such thing as dead, deader, and deadest again. So here we find this young man had died, been dead long enough. The body's been washed. The body's been anointed. They're leaving the city and they're heading to the cemetery. The Lord Jesus Christ is heading to the city. And they meet. And here you're going to find two, grieve, two people associated with sorrow meet. This woman has sorrow in her heart. This woman is grieving in her heart. What's said about the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter 53? He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus can relate to this woman right here. We have two sons. We have the only son of a widow woman, and we have the only begotten son of God. This only son of the widow woman is dead. He was alive and is dead. The Lord Jesus Christ is alive but destined to die. And they're going to meet. And the Lord is going to touch that buyer. 
That's the thing the body was laying in. It was more or less kind of like an open stretcher. And they're going to stop, which is pretty much is uh, miraculous to me. A total stranger comes up there and touches the buyer. I would think normally anybody else, there would probably been a protest about that. But no word is said. They just stop. The Bible says Jesus had compassion on her and says, weep not. And he says unto that young man, arise. And the young man arose and began to talk. They gave the daughter of Jairus something to eat. That showed she was alive. This man here rises and begins to talk. We're not, said, we're not told what he said, but I think it'd be pretty interesting, wouldn't you? It'd be probably pretty interesting to know what this man said after he was risen from the dead and rises up in that coffin. They're going to the cemetery. Jesus going to the city. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that by faith, Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. I'm looking for a city. I've had too many cemetery experiences as it already is. And more than likely, I'll have some more. And in all likelihood, I'll have one, a personal one one day when uh, they take my body to the cemetery and put me in the grave. I figure I'll probably go there. Although I'm holding out hope that I'll live long enough. I'm like the man who was 90 years old and he needed a new roof. So he goes down to, I'll say Lowe's, and he says to the people at Lowe's, I want... Uh, I want uh, the best roof you got. And they bring him out and put on a 10-year-old roof. Or not well, a 10-year-old, but a roof warranty for 10 years. He got upset with them. He went back there and he says, I told you I wanted a, a really great roof. I wanted one that was going to last at least 25 years. And this is a 90-year-old man talking. He was pretty optimistic, wasn't he? <laughs> He's pretty optimistic. <laughs> He didn't want to have to replace that roof again. He's 90 years old. They brought him out. A roof is supposed to last 10 years. Now he's worried. He's going to have to replace it again. I've had too many cemetery experiences. More than I'd like to, you know, think about. But I tell you what, I'm looking for a city. I'm going to a city. You find here where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to raise that man from the grave. So we got three recorded instances where God raised the dead, restored their life back to them again. One is a young lady, twelve year, young girl, 12 years old. One's a young man. I don't know his age, but he's a young man. And then there's Lazarus, who was an adult man. They all had three had died and had been dead for different lengths of time, which made no difference. Jesus spoke directly to all three of them, and there was instant success in every case. Not a, there was not a failure. Jesus Christ is not a failure in any way whatsoever. You know, I don't care what kind of man has lived here in this world, how great that man has been, how great that man might be all along the way. If you look at his life, you're going to find somewhere along the line where he was a failure in something. But now study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When I study the Bible from cover to cover about the Lord and Jesus Christ, I read about a man who never failed. I read about a man who never had, uh, you know, a, a moment uh, where he'd come up short of the mark. I'm talking about a man that was victorious. I'm talking about a man who got the job done. I'm talking about a man who done the will of the Heavenly Father and total perfection where he crossed every T and dotted every I. I'm talking about a man that Paul said, but thanks be to God which give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think it's a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead. 
I believe that with all my heart. That God raised him from the dead. He raised his own self from the dead in a glorified state. And the day's going to come when I'll come out of the grave and I'll look better than I do right now. And you will too. I guarantee you that. Uh, you have never looked so good in all your life to how you're going to look when you come out of that grave. When the Lord speaks and your body hears the sound of the voice of the Son of God and you come out in a glorified body. I'm not glorified now and you're not glorified now, but we look forward to that day, do we not? We look forward to that wonderful and glorious day when that will be the case. And again, I'm not a miserable man this morning. I'm a happy man. I'm a joyful man. And I'm really happy right now. Okay? Now, check with me about noontime tomorrow and I might have a different story. All right, now, once I get back in this old world and trial and tribulations of this old world and my attention gets off God, my eyes are off God, uh, you know, I might be a little bit lower down than what I'm at right now. But right now, I feel like I... I why wouldn't I be happy? Why wouldn't I be joyful? <laughs> why wouldn't I be? I don't know what's going to happen between here and death. That the man one time said, said, oh, I don't mind death. I'm just uh, concerned about what's happening between here and there. So I don't know what's going to happen between here and death, but I tell you what, uh, the good Lord is not going to forsake me. The good Lord is not going to deny me. The good Lord is not going to uh, 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 forsake. Uh, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise of God. So if I got that promise to rely on, if I got that promise to cling to, if I got that promise to embrace, if I got the promise that if I pass this seat of life before the Lord comes again, that's okay. My soul and spirit to be with the Lord in glory. And my body be laid in this grave right here. But I'll hear his voice one day. That body will come out of that grave and be glorified and be reunited in my soul and my spirit. That makes me happy. So if I got my mind on that, I'd be happy no matter if the world is burning down, my friends. And I think it's getting pretty close to it. I know what the end's going to be. Don't you? Thank you so much for your wonderful attention this morning.